Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Hey, good morning. It is good to be with you today. And uh, as, I was, as I was getting dressed uh, this morning, I thought, do I dare wear a flamingo print shirt? Like, is that, is that too tacky? Is that too gaudy? And then I remembered, your pastor wears scarlet and gray. So I'm good. You know, I'm good. Um, it's good to be with you. And uh, I, I really just, I love working with your pastor and uh, he's on a team with me. We're looking at trying to explore how can we um, see more disciples made and how can that result in us needing to plant biblically based gospel centered churches in the state of Michigan. We need more gospel centered churches in this state, around the world, but definitely uh, in this state. So I appreciate him and appreciate the ways in which you guys have been a, a part of this beautiful uh, association called the American Baptist Churches. And you, you heard the Clemmers uh, uh, last Sunday. I was with them the whole week prior at the World Mission Conference. And I can just tell you um, what they're doing, how awesome that is. Our other missionaries are doing that too. And so as, as you give to international ministry, you are um, just touching lives literally around the globe. And it's so cool that through this association principle we have as Baptists, you will always have an impact greater than what you bring to it. And I just think that's a, that's a great thing that we have going. We're going to be in, uh, in God's Word this morning. There's not going to be one spot we're going to be. We're going to be in a ton of spots. But if you would just uh, join me in prayer, I never want to uh, speak without um, God leading that whole time and leading me. So would you just uh, uh, bow your head in prayer this morning? Lord, we ask that in this moment that you would uh, speak to us, uh, encourage us, uh, challenge us. Lord, we know that um, if we're going to receive spiritual truth today, uh, your spirit's got to uh, open our spiritual eyes to see it, to hear it. Father, I, I just ask that um, you would overwhelm this room, overwhelm it with your goodness, with your grace. Lord, we don't come to church to feel supercharged or super guilty and then, and then go back to just life as normal. Um, you are our life. You're our reason, and so disrupt us so that on the back end of today, we would be um, in step with the move of your Spirit, looking, doing, being who you called us to be. Only you are able to do all that. That's why we're praying to you and nobody else. May that be so. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, in churches like this, if I were to say to you, man, we need to see revival in America, I, like, I already know in advance I can get at least 20 to 30 amens from the crowd. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. We want to see revival in America. We want to see revival in our churches. And we, we want that. But at the same time, we kind of struggle to see evidence of that. It's our desire. We want it to happen. We just struggle to find where it's happening here. In James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone 
Uh, Happy, let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And here it is. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So if I were to say to you that we need to see revival in America today, amen, amen, yes, 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 yes. And if I were to say to you, and prayer is the way that we get there, everyone in this room would agree. I don't think there's anybody who would say, no, that's not the way. We can get there in our own strength. We all know that we need revival, we need renewal, and we know that prayer is the vehicle to bring us there, and yet we struggle to pray, don't we? Our prayer life is not what it could be and not what it should be. And if I were to say to you, well, you know, maybe, maybe you're just not praying. You go, I, I do, I pray. This is what I hear all the time. Pastor, I pray all the time. And here's what they typically mean when they say that. I'm going to give you some examples of the type of prayers people pray when they say they're praying all the time. Here's the first one. I call it the stuck-on-repeat prayer. The stuck-on-repeat prayer is the prayer that you pray when you really want to be super spiritual. It's where you say Jesus' name like 10 times in one sentence. Holy Spirit, God, whatever it is. And and it's just super repetitive. It's supposed to make you sound more spiritual in the eyes of other people. But here's the thing. If prayer is about me being in relationship with God... I need to think about that, and I need to look at my relationship and say to my spouse, when I talk to my wife, Erica, I don't say, Erica, 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 Erica. She'd be like, what's wrong with you? So we have these stuck-on-repeat prayers. Um, Here's another one, Band-Aid prayers. Band-Aid prayers are the prayers you pray when you've got a boo-boo, and you need God to fix the boo-boo. And so it may be two, three, or four sentences long, but in reality, the totality of your prayer is three words. If you really kind of just reduce it down, take all the fluff out of it. Fix it, God! That's it. You know, we, we're, we're, something happens, we go to him and we say, we need you to fix this, change this, do whatever you need to do so that I could go on with the rest of my life. But one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in prayer is prayer about, is about fixing me first and my problems second. Amen. If prayer is supposed to be an extension of our relationship with God, then what kind of a relationship can we call it if we only talk to Him when we have a problem? Amen. So imagine, you know, if I only talk to my wife, like if I ignored her throughout the day, throughout the week, and then a problem comes, and I go, oh, oh, honey, honey, fix it. We are not going to have a real vibrant marriage there, are we? You know, life is, that, so if we call prayer a relationship, then it should look like a relationship, and we shouldn't just use the other person. Here's the next one. The fix them prayer. Fix them prayers are done in group settings. Fix them prayers is, is when maybe you're in a small group or a Sunday school class and you're going to go around and pray, and so you're holding hands, and so you're there and you're praying, Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray by your power and your might you would move in the heart of my wife so that I could go on that hunting trip next month. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are kind and gentle and tender. Help my husband to be that way towards me. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so these are the type of prayers we pray when we're not really talking to God. We're like going around God and to that person. We use prayer to try to change the behavior of the person that is standing next to us in prayer. And then here's the last one, what I call the autopilot prayer. Autopilot prayer is when before you open your mouth, everybody else already knows the key words and or key phrases that you're going to say in prayer. Like you, you, you've got a, you've got a shtick. You, you, you're, you're typecast when it comes to prayer. And we struggle with this with our girls. When we say uh, we pray for our food at dinner, I can tell you in advance what each girl is going to say almost to the word. And, and, and it's, it's those prayers that we just, it's like a knee-jerk response. We just go there. We just say these things. It's just kind of who we are. But we don't really think about the words. We don't really meet with God and speak from the overflow of that. All of these are symptomatic of what I call a, a lifeless prayer. So, some people would say, I pray all the time, Pastor, and that might be what their prayers look like. Others, if they were honest, they go, you know, I just, I don't pray as much as I should. Have you ever stopped to, to wonder why, why that is? Why you don't pray more than you do? There is an answer. It's an uncomfortable one. The reason that you don't pray more than you do is because you're not seeing a return on your investment. Because if you were seeing a return on your investment, you would invest more in prayer, wouldn't you? But because we're not seeing a return on our investment, we're not seeing God move in significant ways around the areas that we're praying about, one of two things happen. Either we abandon prayer altogether, or we adopt this, this very mediocre, apathetic, temporary prayer life and live with guilt, knowing it could be more, knowing it should be more, but never having the experience of knowing that it could be more personally. Well, if it helps, you're not the first person or the first group to have that. Folks walked around with Jesus, saw Jesus pray, and they went, that's not what we do. <laughs> Help us do what you're doing, because we, we're, we're not doing that. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Quarrels are these extended arguments. It's, it, it's, the, it's the Hatchfield and the McCoys. It's, you're always at odds over that issue all the time. You just keep coming back to it. Uh, fights are these things that kind of just uh, show up out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's a dust-up. Things are going great, and then something happens, and boom, there's a spark. And James says, do you want to know why you have ongoing issues with people? Do you want to know why there are times where things are going great and then, man, there's a dust up out of nowhere? Do you want to know why that is? And he goes on to answer the question that he raises. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What, what, Brian, why do you have this ongoing issue with that person? Or why can things be going great and all of a sudden there's, an, there's this dust up with this person and there's, you go from zero to a flame in no time? Why, why is that? And James would say, I'll tell you why. It's your desire. It's, it's your wants. It's because I want what I want when I want it and that's why I have relational friction. 
my desire, your desire for self-gratification is so great, we live most of our life unaware of it. So great and so strong is it. I want to ask you this question. When is the last time that you did something you really didn't want to do? Consider that versus how much time you spend doing only what you want to do. And when, and if and when you did something you didn't want to do, didn't you have to talk yourself into it? Didn't you have to like, come on, come on, I, I need to... There's, there's something in you and something in me that our pursuit of what we want is so massive. We're just we're, we're blind to it. That desire, that thing that resides in you and that resides in me, that's why we have quarrels and that's why we have fights. James says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You go, kill? I never killed anyone. You maybe killed your integrity. You killed a relationship. You killed your, um, your future. You killed your witness for Jesus. You killed that opportunity. I'd rather kill all these things than my desire for me. James says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And here it is. You do not have because you do not ask God. Whoa, whoa, time out, bro. Brian, the Bible's got to be wrong here. I don't think I can say that in church, but I feel like it's wrong here because I ask, I ask God for lots of stuff, and I'm not seeing it. Maybe this isn't true. I think James would maybe say, well, maybe it's because you're asking for the wrong stuff. Could it be that you are asking God for the lesser things when he wants to give you the greater things? Lesser things like a new job better behaved children, more money in your bank account, a nicer spouse. We, these are the prayers that we pray all the time. Lord Jesus, move in power so I can have a spot close to the door at Meyer. And if you were to take most of what we spend our prayer time on and compress it down, here's what our prayer life would really center around. God, give me a wrinkle-free life. Make life easy for me. And it's not that God is unwilling to do that. But God, Father God, knows this, that if I have a steady diet of ice cream, I'm never going to eat my vegetables. So if God continually gives you, satisfies your desires for lesser things, you'll never want the greater thing. In other words, if he keeps giving you your kingdom come, you'll never have an appetite for his kingdom come. And yet look at what our, the bulk of our prayer time is spent on. Give me my kingdom. Give me my kingdom. I want this, I want this, and I want this. And if you're good, you'll do this. We miss out on the greater things. Things like not, not, not keeping you from a storm, but giving you peace in the midst of it. Amen. It's strength in a trial. Amen. Sorrow, you can have joy in it. You can have hope in hurt. The greater things that God wants to do in your life through prayer is putting the character of Christ in you so it comes out of you. 
That's, that's the greater things that God is going for. And we'll never ask for the greater things if all he ever does is give us the lesser things. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, people on TV, uh, preachers, that um, embarrass Jesus. Um, and, and, and they make all these promises, you know, God wants to do this, God wants to do this, and God wants to do this, and God's in heaven going, I do? So with that as a backdrop, I, w- I, w- I would say to you this. Um, there, there is something God promises to do 100% of the time if you ask him. 100% of the time, if you pray this prayer, God will answer it with, with a resounding yes. Here's what it is. God, do whatever you have to do to get the character of Christ in me to come out of me. He, he says yes to that prayer all the time, but we'd rather have the parking spot admire. I want to give you an example of how this can be true. In Matthew chapter 11, begin, uh, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, if you have burdens today, if you get alone with me repeatedly, faithfully, and honestly, you will find rest. He promised rest Not that he was going to take away the burdens. Not that he was going to fix everything. He says, if you really want rest, take my yoke and you'll get it. A yoke is a farming analogy where you would adhere two animals together to ensure that they were moving in the same direction and that they were moving in step. When is the last time that you had the spiritual chutzpah to pray, God, do whatever you have to do in my life to get me locked in step with you, moving in the same direction at the same pace for the same reason. Jesus says, if you pray that prayer, God will move in your life. But notice who he made this bold promise to. People who did not have a wrinkle-free life. In fact, I would argue they had way more burdens than you and I ever have. And yet he says, you will find rest. And if you don't have it, it's because you didn't ask. The issue for us today is not, does God know how to give good things to his children? The issue for us today is, do we know how to ask for the right stuff, the deeper stuff, the greater things that God wants to do? John 3.30 says, he must become greater and I must become less. When is the last time in your prayer life you said, God, I want you to be greater and I want, I, I want to become less and you do whatever it takes to make that happen in my life? Like, that's scary, isn't it? But can I tell you what's scarier than that? Not sensing the presence of God in prayer. Living this, this, this anemic Christian life where union and, and a vital relationship with Jesus really doesn't materialize. I want to read a few verses to you. Matthew 21, 22 says, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Luke eleven nine. 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. John 14, 3. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
there is a whole subset of Christians who take this and turn it into this name it and claim it. If I just put Jesus' name and slap it on there, I'm going to get whatever it is that I ask for. But there's an equally offensive group in the body of Christ who looks at that and goes, yeah, I don't know. I don't think God's that good. I don't think he's that faithful. I don't think his word's that true because I'm just not seeing it. But what, what he's saying is if you abide in me, if you are vitally connected to me, I'll be moving in, in you and through you in prayer so that I will steer your heart and you'll be praying and wanting the very things that I want. John 16, 23 says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. When we pray and we end our prayer with in Jesus' name, that's not a postscript that we slap on it so that we can, we can you know, kind of land the plane of prayer and everyone can open their eyes and be done. When you and I, and I hope that you remember this long after this, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, not, not my will, but yours. I want what you want, God, not what I want. So you've heard this prayer that I prayed. Now do so in Jesus' name for your will, for your pleasure, for your power, for, for your authority's sake. I want what you want. It's our passionate pursuit. So the place where your prayer and mine becomes effective is when we start praying in agreement with the will of God and not the want of me. See, our disconnect in prayer is that all of us come to prayer to get something from God, and God comes at prayer to get something in us. And so we short-circuit the purpose and power of prayer when we try to get first instead of becoming first. Because the truth of the matter is there's a lot more God can and will do if you're in a position to receive it. Prayer is the process by which we become spiritually fit to receive that which God is already willing to do. The reason that you are praying these things, if you're praying, God, I, I, I think this is what your will is and what you want, and you're not seeing it happen in your life, I would argue that God, from his vantage point, would say, you're not spiritually fit to receive it. So there's a deeper work I need to do in your life so that you are spiritually fit to receive what I already want to do in your life. And prayer is how we get fits. And so we've got to change our way of thinking about prayer. It's not getting God on my agenda. It's me getting on His agenda. And because we don't think that way, our prayers become ineffective. They become weak and anemic, and we quit in prayer. Verse 3 of James says, when you ask, you do not receive. We're going, okay, that sounds right. Because, here's the, here's the reason why, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Wrong motives. I know what's best for me. This will make me happy. Now, now make it happen, Captain. Do what you do, God. God's not going to answer those prayers. And for the, our remaining moments, I, I just want to invite you to be open to the possibility that there are wrong ways of praying and that God in heaven, as I want to show you, has what I would call a mute button. That God in heaven at, sometimes looks upon his children who are praying to him 
and he hits the mute button, and he's not listening. And that may disrupt your thoughts on you know, what prayer looks like, but I want to show you from God's Word where this is the case. Psalm 66, verse 18 says this, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I'm born again, but my behavior is wrong, I have unconfessed sin, my motives are impure, my prayers are going nowhere. John 9.31 says, We know that God does not listen to sinners. Who does he listen to? He listens to the godly person who comes to church. doesn't say that. Who does his will. It is the doers of the will of God who have the ear of God. And here's the point. Our behavior impacts God's willingness. You cannot be indifferent to the sin that Jesus bled and died for. Openly walk in it and flaunt it, excuse it, justify it, try to find a Bible verse to say it's okay to do, and then go to him for the very sin that he bled and died for and say, now would you move in this area of my life? You're not spiritually fit to receive what he's already willing to do. Let me give you some, some examples of ways in which God would hit the mute button. And so maybe, just maybe, you might identify one, two, or three of these and go, oh, oh, maybe that's why I'm not sensing God in prayer. Isaiah 59.1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Here it is. So that he will not here. We're praying, and God's not listening. He's, he's hit the mute button. Because if the point of prayer is to be spiritually fit to receive what God is already willing to do, I'm not going to see answers to prayer if I have sin in my life and I refuse to deal with it. Amen. So sadly, most Christians in America would rather just, you know, adopt an apathetic prayer life rather than actually take the time to dig up and root up whatever sin might be in their life and get rid of it. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, where, 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 where true prayer begins is not 60 seconds in the shower, and you're done. True prayer is that you are willing to sit under the gaze of Almighty God and say, God, shine your light in me. Show me what's there that you see that I don't see so that I can, uh, I can be clean before you. I want to I confess these unknown sins. And listen, God has got like a laser that can pinpoint areas in our heart that we would never think to look. And have you ever wanted to be so clean and so pure before God that you invited somebody else to speak into your life? To say, listen, if you see an area in my life where I'm not walking with Christ, would you point that out to me? Would you challenge me in that area? Most Christians don't want to do that. And it's no surprise that our prayers are so, eh. Ezekiel 14 beginning in verse 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? 
God puts the idolatrous person on mute. He's like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not listening to that prayer. And we have to be honest enough in our country to, to, to say that there is a buffet of idolatry options available to us at any moment. I mean, whether it's comfort, control, convenience, political ideology, our kids, the sports. I mean, you, you name it. And we go to that place over and over and over again. And then we, we don't see God move, and we're like, well, what's going on there? And then you have a situation like you did last week where the missionaries are telling you powerful ways in which God is moving everywhere else. Have you ever stopped to wonder why it is that missionaries send reports from other places around the world where God is moving mightily, but it doesn't seem to be happening here? Could it be that in their poverty, they don't have the opportunity for the idolatry that you and I have, and they're desperate, broke, and, and, and longing for God? And guess what? He's faithful, and he moves. But because I'm more interested in my 401k rather than whether or not you're spiritually okay, God's like, I, I, I don't know that I need to move. In fact, I would argue God looks at most of our churches in America and goes, you can do what you're doing without me. You don't really need me, do you? Rather than root out our idols and see God move in prayer, we're going to hold on to them and grow apathetic because we're not seeing results in our prayer life. Proverbs 28, 9. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even their prayers are, I couldn't say this, I can only read it, they're detestable. In fact, so you could be sitting here today hearing the word of God, hearing the challenge, even that you just heard uh, that, 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 that idolatry, right? You know, your 24-hour your news cycle may be discipling you more than Jesus is right now. And you know it. You're here. You know it. But you're like, I'm not changing. I, nothing's going to change. I am who I am, and that's going to stay the same. And you refuse to submit to God's word. And then in the next moment, you go, well, I should say my prayers. And then you're surprised when God's not really active and vibrant and moving in the midst of that. It's because God has said those prayers are detestable. When you know what he wants you to do, and the answer is no. In other words, if you say to God, I'm not moving, then God says to you, then neither am I. Not, not because God's petty. Not because he's trying to get you back. It's not a tit-for-tat thing with God. If God chooses to put you on mute, he does so for this one and only reason. Because he understands the power of prayer. There is such vibrancy and beauty and nourishment to your soul that he believes if he shuts off the well, it's the most startling thing he could do to you spiritually to get your attention. And for most of us, we have just decided a dry well is just the way it is. So God's desire is not to go, oh, well, you know, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, I'm not listening to you. He loves you so much, he would withhold his voice in your spirit so that you would go, something's wrong here.
Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Friends, God cares so much for those who are in need. He's unwilling to meet your need if you won't meet theirs. And I realize I've been here less than 24 hours, but I'll tell you what, when I drove around Cadillac, there's a whole lot of brokenness in this town, isn't there? There's a whole lot of people in need. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. There's, there, there are pockets of great poverty. And in those pockets of great poverty, the question is, will the church of Jesus Christ step into that? One time I was in... Um, in prayer at our church, and there was um, a guy there, and he was praying, and because the town that I lived in, uh, still live in, there was a great deal of brokenness and poverty as well, and his conviction was that um, there's not going to be um, more people who come into the church until we're willing to serve the least of these. In other words, he said, if you won't minister to the least of these, I won't give you more of these in your church. That God says, you need to take serious this idea that you need to um, care for the poor, care for the broken. Do broken people in Cadillac believe that you'll help them? I'm not talking about handouts, right? Say, will you help them? Will you care for them? Will you walk with them? I have to look at my own heart and go, do I really care for the marginalized? Do I care for the widows? Do I care for the orphans? Do I care for the refugees? Does injustice to others matter to me? And God wants to bring you to a place where you are moved about the things beyond your own little world, beyond the things that just affect you. And when he sees you caring about what he cares about, then he'll care about what you care about. A couple more, and then we'll wrap up. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Ladies, don't give your husband a cracked rib with one of these right now. Because in, in a second, I want to show you that I think there's a broader application to us here. If you're not attentive and considerate and tender towards your spouse. God says, I'm not going to be attentive to your prayers. Not for tit for tat, but if I withhold my presence, my voice from your life, that should sound alarm bells. And yet we understand that in that culture, women didn't have the rights that they did. Men had rights. And so because men had more power, I think the application can go to both men and women today, this idea that if you had power and you don't use your power for those who are lacking power, God's not going to release his power in your life through prayer. Men, ladies, maybe instead of giving up on prayer today, try loving your spouse like Jesus loves you. Try serving somebody who can't serve themselves. Lastly, Mark eleven twenty five, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you of your sins. 
You may be the first person, but I've never met anyone, so you may be the first. I've never met anyone who had a vibrant prayer life and had unforgiveness in their heart. I've never met the person. It, 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 it's something that we don't calculate, we don't factor in when we hold that grudge, when we hold on to that hurt, and we refuse to forgive that person. That we don't realize that our prayer life is going to flatline as a result of that. You're not going to sense God. You're not going to feel Him move. And again, rather than actually forgive that person, what do we do? Well, you know, I guess prayer doesn't work. Or I'll just do the simple prayers and call it good. Friends, I want to see renewal and revival in America. But it is only going to happen through prayer. And here's my challenge to you today. Would you be willing this week to sit before the Lord and allow him to examine your heart? And in examining your heart, ask him, is there any offensive way in me? Clean me. Purify me. So that I could have vibrant union with you and see the move of God happen in me and through me. Because, listen, we have a watching world right now who thinks so... Listen, the watching world is apathetic to the church right now because in many places the church is apathetic in prayer. We see renewal in prayer. You will watch a world that's kind of like this to the church suddenly lean in a little bit and go, what do you have that I don't? Let's let that be our prayer today. Lord Jesus... I pray and ask that you would um, move in the hearts of these people today, move in my heart, that we would see prayer become a much more uh, vibrant and vital um, union with you. Lord, we have adopted a a mentality that says, I can just do whatever I want, go to you in prayer, and you're going to be like the genie in the bottle and and help me out. But Lord, show us that's not the case, that you are a holy God who wants to do good things in his children. So touch us. God. Be a pebble in the shoe of our soul that we just can't shake today. And when we pray, help us always to remember that in Jesus' name means something. So we end this prayer now. In Jesus' name. Amen.